Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. I'm Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am joined remotely by Camden Haig and Jack Stein. Camden is an American expat and the co-founder of eight bars and restaurants in Shanghai, including Egg, Bird and Bitter. Jack is the middle son of Rick and Jill Stein and chef director of the Rick Stein Restaurant Group in the UK. He is the star of the TV show Born to Cook and the author of World on a Plate. On this episode, we discuss the forced closures of bars and restaurants in the current climate, how this has affected businesses in different parts of the world, and how the reopening of venues has gone. We talk about health and safety strategies and how they have been received by the public and by staff, and how they impact the classic notion of hospitality, and whether face masks and digital menus are the new norm of the service industry. I'm here with Camden Haig and Jack Stein. Good to speak to you. Um, so we're, we've got two of us in Cornwall in the UK and one a little bit further away in Shanghai, right, Camden? Yes, yes. I'm all the way over here on the other side of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. So Camden, Shanghai, you're, you're a New Jersey native, right? You're American. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Ha- tell us a little bit about how you ended up running venues in Shanghai. That's a great question. I think many of us who are out here often wonder that every day, how we ended up getting out here and why we're still here. Um, I was actually living in London for two years before coming out here. So I was actually working in advertising for Saatchi and Saatchi in London. Back in the day, they sent me over here to do a three to six month gig. And uh, it's been eight years. I fell in love with the city. I wanted to stay. I've always, always wanted to do hospitality. So it allowed me to switch over to that as my passion instead of staying in advertising. So when did you, you left Saatchi and Saatchi such to do the hospitality thing? Exactly, yes. So their, their loss is our gain, basically. I hope so, at least. Um, in six years, I opened my first place around five and a half years ago. Um, it was an all-day cafe, kind of breakfasty, brunchy things all day. And now I run eight venues here. Uh, tell us a little bit about the venues, because it's quite a broad sort of selection of often. You've got cafes, right, and then more kind of drink and alcohol-related venues, correct? Yeah, it's a bit of a spread. It's a diverse portfolio. So started with the kind of all-day brunchy place. Then I opened a natural wine bar with small plates. And next to it is a sister venue that does cafe by day cocktails at night. And there we, mo- we mostly focus on um, Amari and other kind of Italian classics. Um, so just basics, Negroni spritzes and, and the like. Um, very much inspired by Dante in New York, where I used to spend mm-hmm. way too much time um, <laughs> as a younger human. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I'd since then opened a Northern Thai place, a highball bar and Konbini, uh, which is like a convenience store inspired Japanese highball bar and a matcha tea stall, which we have two venues um, serving interesting takes on matcha beverages, and then just opened a modern Chinese restaurant. Wow, uh, a matcha tea bar sounds amazing. Yeah, it's something different. It's fun. I mean, it's funny because we're kind of, you know, the whole photogenic nature of needing to have things that are beautiful. And uh, I think it's such a funny trend, but it's really led to people being more interested in matcha. It's something I've always really loved, but the fact that it's a green latte looking thing that makes people way more attracted to it to take pictures of which is sad to say but true (laughs) do you do the whole like whisking ritual exactly we do whisking in the bowl and then we pour that over the top of whatever flavor combos they choose so it's been yeah really cool playing with things um jack your uh access point into hospitality um it's probably a little bit more obvious than camden's um at least for anyone living in the uk um but you've i guess kind of overseen a pretty significant expansion in the Rick Stein empire over the last few years, right? What's the sort of journey 
in hospitality look like from start to finish for you? Yeah, well, obviously, yeah, we've owned, uh, we've had a re- main restaurant in Padso since 75, so 40, nearly 45 years. So yeah, I started as a kitchen porter when I was way too young to be working. Like, it's cheaper than childcare, so I think like, like 11, I was in there doing dishes and that, and um, and that was when Rick was, at, like, before his sort of TV shows and everything, so it was, it was pretty disorganized, it was old school hectic like French style it was and it, watching it from the from the pot wash area it was people getting fired all the time and it was you know we had like people like Mark Best from Australia the three hats chef came did a day in there and just said nah I'm, I'm out of here went to Manwai it was all it was it was I mean Cornwall in those days was you know it was nothing like it is now it was super seasonal people didn't really understand good food it was very the suppliers were just shipping everything to the continent so yeah and then I worked front of house worked bar uh, then worked wine um, until I went to uni spent way too long at uni and then came back to the kitchen and then just worked through through there went to France went to Paris uh, went to Sydney uh, did a stage in Japan in Tokyo and then came back uh, worked uh, through all the kitchens and uh then went off. I went to Michel Brass, the three star, for a stage as well. That was my last stage I did. I just at that point, that place is was insane. I mean, they've handed back their stars now, but it was, you know, you just at that point you realise, you know, Dad's always says simple food is best, like a nice simple piece of fish with a bit of lemon wedge and that. And and I'm I'm in this three star kitchen going, I am way over my head here. I did not know what's going on. Foraging every every split, and I'm like, nah, I'm I'm out of here. I'm, so I just pretend. I, what I said was, I prefer the simple things in life. What I meant was, I'm just not skilled enough. <laughs> so, so, um, and then yeah, then I came back here, and we've expanded. Yeah, we've we've built the brand. It's it's not quite as um, diverse uh, a brand. It's it's mainly seafood, uh, and yeah, and then obviously uh, the last four months, I don't think I've ever worked as hard in the last four months since lockdown. Uh, just business survival mode. It's been I I would say harder than doing a four hundred cover service in the main restaurant on source with you know with half a staff off and not not in it's just been it's been just cognitively really tough so so yeah it's a new environment now we're all working in um so yeah that's my journey um yeah last four months like you say has been hard work so how tell us a little bit about that period and what it's like being a kind of high profile operator that's in the spotlight and you know i guess a lot of other operators if they're not looking to you then they're being exposed to what you're up to just because it's being printed in the press yeah that's that's been the biggest thing for us you know again a lot we everyone was in the same boat you know we went from uh, you know revenue to no revenue uh, we were looking at like our business you know it, it's a seasonal business you know in Cornwall we make our money in the summer and in the winter we lose money uh, so that period of time March April just before Easter is the first months that we actually have money coming into the bank the rest of the from November to March it's all outgoings and because we're open 364 days of the year so yeah, it was tough. I mean, our cash flow modeling was the main thing. We just had to look at our cash because we had enough cash to last till April. We were going bust in April. Then the furlough scheme came out, which was the job retention scheme, which pushed our cash flow to August. And we were just hoping we could get open before August because we were still, uh, to be honest, even still now, we're not 100% going to make it. Um, we had uh, an insurance policy which was and the insurance that you could do a whole podcast on the insurance situation but I'll, just to say our in policy is still we're still working on it um and it was just you know it was one of those situations where you just don't 
really every day is different every day you know you're going to lose everything and then 650 people are going to be made unemployed and what we decided to do was tell our staff early we said right we're going to be really honest with people so we've got an internal um, Facebook kind of messaging thing which we've built um, it rather hilariously called Placebook uh, which is a type of fish obviously Um, and um, (laughs) we just told our staff we said look we're going to be honest with you we are going to run out of money like there's no two ways about it so we need you to um to you know talk to your mortgage advisors talk to your landlords talk to anyone you can we've got a whole finance team to help you but we we don't want you just to assume that because we because of our reputation and size that we aren't in like deep in the weeds here we are going out of business and um and that story got leaked to the press uh and they went for us and they printed an article which was just like you know everyone's furloughing that's the standard. Every restaurant's doing the same thing. The article headline was Rick Stein refuses to pay his staff, which isn't, isn't true. We paid our staff and then and then they got back paid by furlough. Um, and that was really tough because it's like, you know, we're on our knees. The industry's on, on its knees. Brexit's a huge problem we've still got to deal with in terms of staffing and, 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 and especially London. Uh, and then we've had this. And, and you just think, why, why kick us now? Mm. I think we took a bit of heat for the industry, which was good. I think a lot of, a lot of operators have said to me, personally like you know we everyone did the same thing but we you just you know we kind of shielded it um it's it was tough i was yeah like you were exactly right being a high profile brand it really you know as it really did mean that we we got it in the neck and i just thought at the time it's just not really fair i mean the, our industry may not never recover and why would you print an article like that you know it's like why not print something positive about you know we were doing food for the nhs and we were like going feeding like the kids who could couldn't get free school meals we're doing like six thousand meals a day i mean why not print that you know that's like way better than printing the fact that we furloughed our staff so yeah anyway i ran over no i'm glad you glad glad we gave you a platform to get that one out jack um (laughs) so camden over to you what's it been like in shanghai um because uh, as, as as i understand it the sort of lockdown period was much shorter um, than we've had over here. So how when and it, but it started earlier. So what did it look like from your perspective? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think it was really interesting because we were at the beginning of the situation, and so I think we were the first people to go into lockdown, and there was just a lot of unknown out there. I think no one knew exactly what was happening. No one knew how long it would last, um, which then bumped on to the rest of the world. But it was. It was strange being the first people to kind of experience all of that. So we just after Chinese New Year, there was a big, um, I guess it's the most traveling, it's the biggest traveling time for all of China. It's the largest human migration every year of people going back to their hometowns and then returning to their places of work. And so when everyone was about to travel home, the government actually extended the holiday because they didn't want as many people moving and, and gathering and they wanted everyone to distance and shelter. And so that was kind of the beginning of what's happening? Is there going to be a big issue? Do we have to close? I actually rushed back sit back and reopened um, the shops. And I only had four at the time, actually. So the rest of the four I've opened since then, um, which I can get onto in a minute. But mm-hmm. it was very interesting time. We were closed between 15 and I'd say 22 trading days between all the venues. But the venues are in, it's so funny because in Shanghai and I think many, many Chinese cities, they subdivide the areas in an unclear manner and then also in such a strange way where it's basically street by street jurisdiction. So I would have one shop that's essentially a five minute walk from another 
and they would have totally different rules of how how we could open, not open. Could we have people inside? Would they have to be distanced? Would people have to be wearing certain things, show certain things, have temperatures taken? So it was really hard juggling, you know, all the different rules between each street. Um, so that was it was an interesting time, but we reopened. Things were very quiet in March because people were still coming back to China before they closed the borders. And then uh, a lot of people who had returned were still sheltering. So they were doing their 14 day quarantine. And then since the first weekend of April, we've actually been back to business, which has been, you know, it's a relief, but it's also really tough. I think, you know, as mentioned already, cash being king, you just have to talk to everyone. You have to talk to your landlords, suppliers, be very, very transparent with your team about the fact that, you know, you're in a challenging time, even though we are back in business and we're still really working hard to make sure that we have enough cash flow to keep floating us through this time. It's, you know, we've rebounded in good ways and bad ways. I think 2020 has just thrown a lot of things at us. We've had the longest raining season we've had in a long time. I think in 20 years, we had two months, two full months of rain, um, which usually it lasts three to four weeks. So our terraces are just falling apart and people didn't want to sit outside and no one would want to leave their offices or homes. So it's just been, and now it's super hot. It's hotter than most summers here in China. So we've just had a lot of things thrown at us, but it's, I do feel very, very fortunate. I see what all of our peers are going through around the world. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very aware we're, we're luckier than most. So. So is the situation in Shanghai now that um, the same rules apply all over the city in terms of what you can and can't do and the, and the sort of measures that need to be um, instilled into the into the venues? You know, it's crazy to say, and maybe maybe this will instill hope in many people, but we're pretty much business as usual. We've had a few things kind of a few things that we adapted as hygiene measures that we've kept, such as servers wearing masks. Um, but we don't have to socially distance. We can have a large party at a table together. Uh, our guests don't have to wear masks anymore. We do have our servers wear masks for their own protection and also for visible hygiene, um, which I think is a really important thing. So we still keep hand sanitizers out. We, ha- we still have all of our servers wear masks. We still have all of the kitchen in full gloves, full masks. Things like that, I think, let people psychologically feel a lot safer. But that's not something that's mandated by the city. That's that's your, your your own decision to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. I think it's strange because we so we the same servers, chefs uh, wear masks in our place. We've got uh, we have like a, a pre-sanitized ca- uh, cutlery and pouches which we we steam and we put it down. And I think you're right. It's the psychology of the guests see that. And actually, around this area, there's not a lot of other restaurants doing that like i haven't seen another restaurant one of our veg suppliers says he's he delivers to a lot of restaurants he says hasn't seen the same thing but for us you're right it's the psychology of knowing that you yeah at your point of sale point of contact that that your staff are uh, uh, like you know wearing masks and that and it really does give confidence to the customers i think which is really important Mm. so camden how long do you think you'll keep these measures like masks in place do you think it's it might become a more permanent fixture or is it something you see phasing out over a course of time you know i think it's a double-edged sword because a lot of the hygiene measures elsewhere i've actually really enjoyed like it's a nice it's a nice thing to be able to clean things up and really tighten the screws on hygiene everywhere but in terms of masks for front of house i think that's very very difficult because it is a physical barrier to hospitality you know, you can't see your server smile. It's harder to interact. I think that's been very tricky. So if everyone gets to a point where we do feel safer, I would love to be able to remove that. But for now, it does feel like it's just a it's an extra measure to take that hopefully won't be for too much longer. But for now, it feels much better. 
Um, what about in uh, your venues? Are you you're not doing any so sort of social distancing measures. I don't know if that's the so, that term's applicable to. Well, of course, it's a different language in China, but it's what we call it here. So, like two meters or one meter, or have you removed tables or certain areas that it's harder to keep people apart from each other, or is that not not really a consideration anymore? We we did in the very beginning. We had to remove some tables in some of the venues. Um, again, it was street by street, so some districts said that we had to do that. Other districts weren't really bothered. Um, so we did in the beginning, but now everything is back in place we can still do full capacity we can still do you know large-scale private events and even public events which again I, i know it's um i know it's hard to hear that from elsewhere around the world but i hope that that instills hope in you guys that it will eventually get back to normal we're at that point now where in the beginning people were comfortable eating outside or in space with a little bit more breathing room but now everyone's okay to kind of pack in again have you got like good outdooor spaces at some of your venues because a lot of places in the uk are kind of I guess, sort of stretching the um, legal parameters of what they're allowed to do outside the doors of their venues, like maybe pushing a little bit further onto the pavement than they're supposed to or taking up a bit more room, you know, on a field or whatever. The pub near me have adopted the school playing field as part of their beer garden. I've been loving watching my friends' restaurants in New York, the fact that they've made little islands in the street. I think it's, you know, they're doing what they have to do and total respect to them for that. Shanghai is a bit rainy. And so you can't always use those spaces. So a lot of operators just don't want to risk it. You know, you're paying rent 12 months a year and you're only using it for five or something between the rain, the cold, the heat, whatever else. So we're lucky we have a terrace on top of one of the venues. But as, as, as I mentioned, it's just been so rainy that the thing is basically rotting. Now that we can let people up, it's just crunching under their feet and so i don't think anyone wants to spend any time with them <laughs> it's pretty bad um jack have you had to reduce capacity in your places yeah we did we we took uh i think when when we when the announcement came of one meter plus that's when we were at two meters we were struggling to make money mm. but one meter plus we've we have uh we've used every single nook and cranny of our operation we've got a lot of old buildings with you know like our cocktail bar we, we we're not reopening at the moment so that's got three or four snugs for private dining we've got and we've got quite a few outdoor spaces we've marqueed you know a few areas um we we did yeah we lo- we lost about 10 or 15% of tables in our bigger sites uh, and then our smaller sites are obviously a bigger percentage because they're, they're just not the space um, but what we've done what we found is people are really really flexible it's amazing like we we are up on last year in terms of revenue um average spends are way up people are just because they're just they've been you know locked away for so long they just want we're selling lobsters like you wouldn't believe every restaurant even the fish and chip restaurant has lobster on and people are just buying it at like 40 quid ago um and also just like you know what if you'd say somebody this time last year we've got a table for you at four they'd go for lunch you know they're going nah but now like four or five o'clock it's, it's full you know so people are being really flexible they understand that you know we're all and actually really really nicely our clients we're not seeing a lot of complaints even though we're because we're all learning it's a brand new it's a brand new operating environment and um yeah so we're it's so far so good like we're really we're really pleased with where we are um and it's <laughs> it's um yeah i think the flexibility of our our staff and our customers has been exemplary i mean first day we we opened it was quite weird because we went from nothing to 200 covers for lunch and the staff were quite apprehensive and so we had to really sort of 
you know understand and, and and take on board their kind of feelings but yeah we're, like i say we've got people sat everywhere i mean there's people sat on our on our balconies our roof terraces I, and at the moment you cannot get a table in our re- it's like and i know people always go oh rick's time restaurants you can't get a table in. i literally could not get any i couldn't get myself a table in there um but you're right i mean in cornwall where where obviously most of your restaurants are and I, i've got a restaurant down here as well it's we're right in the middle of the season um the summer season and it's normally busy down here in this time anywhere anyway and because the sort of stops have been let off the lockdown albeit not all the sort of social distancing guidelines and and mask wearing and all that kind of stuff everyone who's been cooped up in the cities has flocked down here like more than ever um i mean every holiday cottage and and hotel must be completely rammed um because it just seems busier than ever down here but not only that people are spending more money as well because they've been cooped up so long and don't and 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 i just sort of really missed hospitality and i think that if there was ever any doubt that the kind of the 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 shape of hospitality was going to change as a result of this pandemic um that that sort of you know we, we we've been you know relieved of that now because there is obviously still a huge appetite for for eating and drinking out but what i will say is that while it's it, cornwall is busy in london um my experience anyway and certainly experience of of many of uh, my industry friends up there is that it's pretty quiet um because offices are not yet back um there's you know still guidance for people to be working from home where they can um it's the summer so people don't tend to be in the city up there anyway they'd want they'd want to be on holiday um probably down in cornwall or or somewhere else like the lake district um and so it's it's definitely quite quieter than than even usual um and there's i think there's a worry there as well that perhaps some of the like the city some of the offices may change the way they operate in the future and you know the fact that they've survived with people working from home might mean they move to sort of you know one day two days three days a week working from home which of course is going to change the city quite dramatically because you know places places like my bar black rock which is right there on the on the edge of the city we rely heavily on the fact that there's millions of people using the office spaces every single day yeah, I think I think I think I mean talking friends of mine who work in the city um, in various capacities. I think there's a feeling that they're just waiting till September. It's like an extended sort of summer for everybody. I think they're all planning to go back in September. All the the law firms that and the, and the merchant banks and stuff. So, but yeah, you're right. I mean, Cornwall. I mean, the difference I've seen down here. Obviously, it's historically a kind of bucket and spade holiday place, but with a lot of people who are very wealthy you've got second homes around the golf courses and stuff like that like you're you're over your way and and over here and but what i'm seeing is these people might do a week or two you know for the summer you know they'll go to france or they go to south you know santa pay or whatever and then they'll spend a week in cornwall doing the kind of like surfing and, and golfing and all that but these people are just here all summer camden what how's the sort of consumer attitude been towards the masks and you know whatever distancing measures you had in place before because like jack says i think um you know masks were much more commonplace before this in in asia whereas in the uk they you know it's it's really quite a new thing and it's quite amazing to see everyone wearing them now or most people wearing them now um 
because it was seen as such an alien idea beforehand and now it really is the sort of new normal what how how are how are people reacting in china and do you think there's still any kind of section of of society who are who are hesitant to go out who are you know are still kind of keeping themselves contained and are nervous about being around other people yeah you know i think the the masks thing although it's funny because when i first moved here after i think that the first time that people in East Asia started adopting masks was during the SARS epidemic in 2008. And that was, it was the first time anyone was using widespread use of masks to try to contain diseases and, uh, and a localized epidemic. And I think in the West, we saw lots of photography of seas of people wearing these masks. And so we thought that it was much more common here than I actually came to experience when I moved over. Some people would wear masks when they were sick themselves. If they had a cold and they wanted to go into the office, they would wear a mask to contain that. But um, I, you didn't really see it on a large scale again until this situation. So yeah. I think although people keep saying, you know, oh, it's so common that East Asians wear masks, it really, it was new for us as well. And so I think everybody who was out here, there's still, there was still a getting used to process, although, there is a lot more, um, I guess people are used to following more close rules and they are used to having people, you know, make decisions on their behalf. The thing that I thought was super cool about the way that the Chinese government handled it was that they actually used a lot of technology, um, QR code on an application where it would chart where you were moving based on your phone GPS and it could tell where you had been. And then also if you'd been in any areas that had had a high number of situations. So it would, it would help people understand, you know, what your likelihood of being in trouble were. And then it would also, you'd have to show that QR code every time you'd go in and out of a building that had a, a higher concentration of people. So something like a shopping mall or um, a market street or something, you'd have to show a QR code that would demonstrate that you're a healthy individual. And they would also do a lot of temperature mapping. And so I thought it was, it was very cool how quickly they responded with all this technology that helped and made everybody feel more secure as well, because they knew that they were being taken care of in a, in a public setting. It was nice. Um, what about um, staff? Like we've talked a little bit about how, how guests um, receive the measures. What about staff? Camden, do you, do you, did you do any additional training or briefings with the team and you know how has the response been to mask wearing and indeed any kind of social distancing measures that when they existed and uh, and have you had any you know any any illness amongst the staff or anything like that that's a great question um we when when the situation had kicked off i think we were still because we were at the, the forefront of it um we were still figuring out a lot of these things ourselves so we compiled all the information we could into a staff handbook and quickly tried to dispense that among all the venues and so we did little trainings in all the spaces and and tried to make sure everyone was familiar with all the things you need to do when guests come in to take their temperature write down the temperature point them to the hand sanitizer, they would use that and they'd go sit down. Um, so we'd have to go through those levels of training. And I actually, I compiled all that into this book that I started sending to friends around the world. And I really hope that that helped in some small way because it was really important for us to move as quickly as possible to get people to understand the severity of the situation and also all the things we could do to prevent it. So the, the staff, I think that they were great. They picked things up very quickly. You just have to be very, you know, transparent 
and also empathetic toward their situation mm. and especially taking measures that they don't get ill. So making sure we're taking their temperatures before, after their shift. If anyone feels even a tiny bit unwell, they go home right away, get tested. Um, I think we were, we were just trying to make sure that they were okay at the end of the day and, and everyone was wonderful. We didn't have any sicknesses on our team. Did you have anyone who didn't want to come back to work or, you know, it was like, you know, I'm anxious, perhaps pre-existing health conditions or, you know, just didn't really like the mood of things and, and, and was reluctant? Yeah, I think in the in the beginning, we had some people questioning whether we should or should not reopen. Um, I made it very clear that if they weren't comfortable, they did not have to come in. Um, we were at that point in time, we had done a deal with their salaries where they're being paid at base plus hours worked. So they could choose whether or not they were, you know, without, they would still have a base level of salary. So it wouldn't fully penalize them, but people who were comfortable, they could come to work and make more money. Um, we had one or two people who didn't feel comfortable, but after a day or two, I think they saw all the measures in place and they came back. Um, we had a few of our, uh, I'd say a few of our older staff members who ended up returning to their old homes. So we say like, uh, which is like to go back to your hometown. And they wanted to stay at home either to take care of relatives or take care of other people. And that was, you know, it was really hard for us to lose some of our older staff members. But if they felt the need to go back, that's the most important thing. Yeah, sure. What about you, Jack? Um, how have the staff received it? Yeah, it was sort of very similar, really. We we yeah, we had a longer lockdown, so we had three months basically to prepare for um, you know for the the, the handbooks. We've also got um, accommodation as well, and um, and we do have a lot of our, like in our some of our support teams, in our ha- housekeeping teams, we do have older people. So we again totally it's up to them we, obviously the government furlough scheme means that we can be pretty flexible so we they don't have to come back if they don't want to um we did see quite a lot of apprehension but again um like camden said it was a, it was a, at the beginning it was you know for the first week or so everyone was a bit like and then people just got into it and the thing is it's our industry is so um is so hardworking and creative and flexible that we we just we worked through every single problem, worked around it, worked understood how we could best um, protect our employees and like 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 Camden said, being extremely empathetic towards their situation. Are you guys doing uh, at, at Rick Stein restaurants? Are you doing like digital menus? Yeah, we have a, an <clears throat> an app. I think that's one of the, the. I think when we look at the positives of. Um, of lockdown, a positive situation. It, it's sped up a lot of our kind of um, R and D in terms of apps, in terms of digital, in terms of all the things that we, I guess, were looking at, but kind of th- thought, does does the Rick Stein brand really need an app? Um, but actually, it's been really successful. Um, uh, and so, all menus digital. We've got you know the app. You can order food before you get there. You can order drinks so that they're ready for you, so you don't actually have to interact with anybody. Um, and that was quite popular at the beginning, like the kind of don't have to see anybody. But now I think after we like Camden said a couple of weeks of opening, people are quite, quite comfortable. We have to see silver lines. Our online, we went online with our uh, Rick Stein at home and we've been doing 1200 uh, box meals, you know, full like restaurants, like ready meals that, you know, lobster thermidor, like all ready to go. You just heat it up and chop some herbs and little videos and that. And then that's been a real big plus for us. I think for going forward, if we have another lockdown, that's probably going to save our business because that's 60, 70 grand's worth of business a week sort of thing. So um, so that's been good. And the app, and these are all silver linings, you know, to a really kind of negative situation that we've, we've seen resilience from our staff. We've seen how strong our brand is. We've seen how a lot of things which have made us feel really confident. And obviously speaking to 
Camden now makes me feel even more confident to see what's happening in Shanghai. With um, the delivery, like food delivery stuff, and this is, I have conversations with lots of bars who've done cocktail delivery as well during lockdown, and with varying degrees of success. It sounds like it's been pretty successful from your end. So is this not something that's like, should just be a permanent part of your business? Yeah, it will be. Yeah, we're looking to to, to build the brand, um, you know, uh, going going forward, regardless of what happens. Again, it's 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 every re- a lot of restaurants have done the similar thing with with varying levels of success. But obviously, I mean, we we've got to be honest here. Rick's on BBC TV. You know, he's known by millions and millions of people. He's on all the time, and people just you know, it's also fish. It's just one of those rant. People are quite scared about cooking fish. So if you just give them, you know, the fish, the sauce, and a video, and it's my mug telling them how to cook it, so that don't know variable success on that. But um, but you know, it's sort of um, you know, and people love it, and and they know it's fresh, and it's from Cornwall. Cornwall's got such a strong brand. I mean, you know, you'd know, you know, yourself, and also you know, working in London for all those years, how strong the Cornish kind of brand is in terms of raw ingredients. So, so yeah, it's something that we're going to definitely keep going and the app is something to keep going. So two silver linings to come out of the situation. Did you do any like drinks or food delivery stuff, Camden? Um, or, or are you still doing it? Yeah, you know, we dabbled in it. I think that it's, it's one of those things that it's very easy to rush into it and think that it's going to be a great success across the board. And I think we saw a very mixed bag across different brands in Shanghai. So I think some of the, you know, Michelin starred restaurants were whacking things into boxes and shipping them off. And I think for that kind of brand, you see very mixed results because people really want the experience of being in that restaurant and, and interacting with servers that are at a certain level. And, and so for us, we recognized as well that most of our products don't travel well. And so we'd have to, we custom designed a menu of mostly sandwiches, easy things that we could whack in boxes and send off. And that did a lot better than um, if we had just used our regular menu items. So we did custom design some things. We did kind of a diffusion line for one of the restaurants. So for Bird, which is the wine bar, usually it's small plates, which are kind of east meets west, um, interesting food. But we did, yeah, just sandwiches. We did bird buns and whacked like, you know, fried chicken sandwich into a bag and sent it off. And that with, uh, you could usually get softs and then we had some cocktails as well. The cocktails I think here are it's people really want to be, again, it's all about the experience. It's about being in that beautiful environment. It's about the low lighting. It's about taking pictures of this beautifully garnished drink made by a Shanghai celebrity bartender. So I think people don't have the the habit of drinking cocktails by themselves at home in the same way. So it didn't, I think, although a lot of the bar did an amazing job choosing things that were incredibly inventive and you know fun packaging really interesting ways cross of epic who's a you know asia's 50 best bartender he made amazing cans that were kind of like campbell soup cans with great cocktails inside super clever all these people did wonderful things but i think that the the customer reaction wasn't as strong as we had hoped so i think in western countries where at home cocktail consumption is stronger i'm sure that they did much much better but um, people were trying their best. And although, you know, it was it was a cute gimmick. And I think a lot of us got, we had some fun out of it. And whether or not it works in the long run, I think it was still a good way to try to experiment with our brands. So it was interesting. Yeah, mixed bag. I think that a lot of the, the places that had success with it, probably like the, it's coming from a place in the consumer where it's like 50%, I want to have a nice cocktail at home. And 50%, 
I'm, I need to look after this venue, otherwise it's probably going to never be open again when it reopens. Because so, it's a good way, good good way of supporting your favourite bar, right? And you know, even in the even in the in in Europe and the US, yeah, people drink cocktails at home, but I think there's a limit to how long they're going to carry on spending, you know, seven, eight, nine pounds a drink that they're going to drink in their house without all the lighting and the music and the and the service that comes with that. Yeah, we actually we saw a couple few there were some nice initiatives that went forward here instead. The bar scope, there was one designer who's a local guy who decided he does a lot of t-shirt printing and somehow we all figured out that he does all of our merchandise. And so he started this campaign that was a very support local kind of collective campaign that he would make t-shirts where the front was a support local message and the back would be your bar's logo. And so he started selling them centrally off of his platform. We could all use our own platforms to spread the word. And that created a really nice way for people to support their bar without, you know, if they didn't want that cocktail at home, they could still sport their bar stripes and, and feel like they were doing something good. Yeah, mix it up a little bit. Nice. It's good to hear some good things come out of all of this, I think. Um, Guys, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I'm super excited about my next trip to Shanghai. Um, I know where I'm going to be eating and drinking, that's for sure. Um, I've given your restaurants enough money as it is already, Jack. So... Um, thanks, Camden. And um, if you're if you're ever in uh, the UK, you know uh, you need to come down to Cornwall yeah, and come, come see to us. Cornwall, Camden. We'll look after you. Definitely. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit DiageoBarAcademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time.